A number of years ago, my, my aunt came to our front door at our home in Fremont where I used to live, and she started pounding on the door. And my mother ran to the door to see what was up, and when she opened the door, my aunt was bedecked with jewelry. And my aunt was excited. She was animated. And my Aunt Kathy said, I've just come back from Princess Di's wedding. I've just returned from the royal wedding. But on closer inspection, they weren't really jewels. She wasn't wearing jewelry. She had cut out replicas of the jewelry in the newspaper, and she had taped them all around her. And it was a funny thing. You know, I, we, we joked about this as a family, just kind of a crazy aunt deal. But what was really funny was the fact that she was even saying that. I mean, how absurd to think that we would go to a royal wedding. By the way, anybody get invited to Princess Kate's? No hands. So that's pretty usual. You don't typically get invited to royal weddings. And yet I find it interesting that even though we think that would be absurd, I have met people that are unbelievers or people that don't believe in the God of the Bible or want to kind of write the Bible their own way, whatever it might be, who are quite certain that they're going to heaven. And that other loved ones who have believed the same thing are there. Does that seem a little bit absurd to you? If it would seem absurd to us that we would be invited to a royal wedding, how much more so that we would expect God to invite us to a wedding in heaven? And yet that's the topic that we're going to tackle today as we continue in our series called Pictures of the Kingdom. Pictures of the Kingdom are about parables that Jesus tells. So a parable is a picture of the kingdom. We don't always understand the kingdom or the spiritual world. And so Jesus will give us parables or physical illustrations that help us understand spiritual realities. And the one that we have today is set up at the beginning of Luke chapter 14, those first 14 verses. Jesus is eating a meal again with the Pharisees or the Jewish religious leaders. And his popularity with them has really waned since his line in the sand that he drew in chapters 11 through 12. And they're not really happy with him. This is the last time recorded in Luke that they will invite him to a meal. And from their perspective, he acts very rude and offensive. What he does is he finds a person that wanders into the meal who is sick, and it's the Sabbath day. And he knows that his guests do not believe in healing on the Sabbath day, but he goes up in front of everybody and heals a man. And then he has the audacity to turn around and look at them and say, was what I just did right? What do you think? Guess what they say? Nada, nothing. They're, they don't want to mess with him at this point. They don't say anything. So he goes on and he gives them a little parable about a wedding feast. And it becomes clear that they are thinking later that he is talking, and he may well have been, about the great banquet of heaven. Now, this has already been talked about in the Old Testament in several places, and perhaps most graphically explained in Isaiah chapter 26, where we're told there is going to be a great banquet of some sort in heaven. Often, a banquet was considered a big wedding feast. And it's sometimes called the messianic banquet, not because people were messy or there were food fights going on, but rather messianic relates to Messiah, right? So in Hebrew, Jesus is called the Messiah or the anointed one, and in Greek, he's called the Christ, the anointed one. And this is his banquet. They understood it had something to do with the Messiah. Later, John, writing Revelation chapters 19 through 20, tells us that there will be a wedding feast in heaven, a wedding feast in heaven that will symbolically recognize the marriage between Jesus and the church. 
And that's us. And so after the final judgment, we'll all be ushered into this enormous cavernous banquet room. We'll sit at tables with people that were famous that we wanted to know about all of our lives and with loved ones and friends who have gone on before us. We'll eat this sumptuous meal and it'll be this time of incredible celebration. And of course, they were looking forward to it and they would talk about it. And so Jesus seems to be using this as an illustration, this banquet room that they would talk about. And what he does in the illustration is he basically ends it by saying, don't push yourself up to the front at the banquet because then you may be told to sit in the back. Humble yourselves and you will be exalted. And he goes on to say this. He says, basically, I look around you and I see that you always invite to your banquet all of your friends and family and the rich and the famous. There's no poor people here or handicapped people here. They'll be there in that day, and they should be here now. Well, you could cut the tension with a knife, right? I mean, nobody's saying anything. And when you're in a situation like that, somebody always feels like they have to stand up and say something and calm the waters. And so that somebody is a guy sitting there at the table, probably one of the Pharisees, well, it would be one of the Pharisees. And this is what he says, recorded in verse 15. He says, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Maybe he stood up and said this. And he's essentially trying to, to calm things over. I, I, think, I think what he's basically doing is two things. One, he's, he's saying, let's calm the waters here. And the other thing he's saying is, will you please notice how wise and diplomatic I am. And so he's making the statement. And what his statement is, it's like making a toast that says, let's not worry about these issues because we all know that we're going to be there at the banquet. And so let's just rejoice in that. Let's drink to it. But he's going to get an earful from Jesus because Jesus is going to tell him that there's something else in store. And it's this, many will miss the meal. Many will miss the meal. Why will they miss the meal? He goes on to explain it in one of his most famous parables, the parable of the great banquet. And it's found um, in verses 15 through 24 of Luke chapter 14. So again, Luke chapter 14, 15 through 24, the first reason is found in verses 15 through 20, and it is that they prioritize themselves. The reason they will miss the meal is because they're too important. They prioritize themselves over the meal over the person who invites them over the host himself. Let's read it first in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, here it is again, blessed is the man who will eat with him, will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell them who had been invited. Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't make it. I can't come. Now, it's a parable. So there's some comparisons being made here. The first person we see is this person identified as a certain man. Later, the certain man will be called the master or the master of the house. If this is the great banquet in heaven, which we truly believe it is, then this person is the host of the banquet. Who would he be? Who are we talking about here? 
God, right? This is going to be God. Now, God has a servant that he sends to earth to invite people to the banquet. Who would that servant be, according to the illustration? Jesus is making the invitation. Who would be the invitees? Who is he inviting? He's inviting us, really. Um, all of us through history, as we'll see. But specifically, he's inviting these Pharisees. And this will be the last of multiple times that he'll give them direct invitations at a meeting. And uh, they are, at this point, at least not all of them, are responding. So we get the, the stage kind of set. And then uh, he has everything set up for the banquet. Now, this is what you do in a banquet in those days. You didn't send out a letter. You didn't send out anything through electronics, through email, or uh, through the mail system, through the um, postal system, or anything else. You didn't have those things available to you. You would send servants to the person's home. And your servant would say, we're going to have a banquet or a wedding feast, and it's going to be at this time, and can you come? And you'd say, yes, you could, and you'd agree. And that was sort of your RSVP. So you give your RSVP, and then the day comes, and they would prepare the banquet. They didn't know how long it would be. When the banquet was ready, they'd send servants to say, the banquet's ready. Come, come and eat. And when that happened, everybody unanimously, as if one said, we can't make it, they all had excuses. And he gives three examples, which is very Jewish, as we learned last week. A lot of times in parables, you would have this idea of, of three. So he gives three examples to give us an idea of how this works out. The first person has an excuse. Let's see what you think about this excuse. He says, I can't come because I brought, bought my new property and I have to go see it. Sound like a good excuse? Any of you ever buy property without seeing it? without even getting a picture of it, ever buy a house without ever seeing it? Sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? That's pretty rare, so it doesn't sound like a very good excuse here. Second excuse, let's see how this guy does. He says, I have five oxen. That means five oxen, he's got a lot of property in those days. So this guy's pretty wealthy, but he says, I have to try out the oxen so I can't come. Does that sound like a good excuse? A wealthy man, he could have somebody else do it. He probably has other oxen. Why would that be so important? The best excuse is number three. Just got married, got a love on my honey, I can't be there. But he's really not that nice about it. He's sort of, you know, curt in the way he says it. And when you look at it and think about it, in the culture at that time, preparing a wedding was a big deal and it took a long time. Wouldn't he have known far in advance that his wedding was going to take place at the same time as the banquet? Certainly he would have. There were not... There were no shotgun weddings in those days. You know why? They didn't have shotguns, right? <laughs> so, so we're in a situation where these guys just all have excuses of their own. And their excuses kind of boil down to this. I, I don't have the time. I want to spend my own time doing my own thing. I want to do things my own way. I, I need to spend time with my money and my possessions. I want to spend time with my friends, my other friends and other people I want to do things with. I just want to have fun. I mean, most people, I think, probably send the RSVP saying, I, I want to go to heaven. I expect to go. But most people then get sidetracked with these other areas. A number of years ago, when she was young, I think a freshman or something like that in college, my sister-in-law, who was very athletic and loved water sports, had an opportunity to go water skiing. The problem was it was the same day that her first cousin was to get married. What choice did she make? 
she went water skiing and she had a great time. The problem is, is when the family gets together, guess what story often comes up? And now as a married mother, she doesn't feel so good about what she did. She understands that that was hurtful. And when we get older, we realize those things. How would you feel if somebody that was close to you, without a good excuse, decided last minute not to go to your child's wedding or come to some big event for you of some sort, and they just backed out? Or maybe that's happened to you before. And that's the kind of situation this is for God. He's given us this opportunity. How are we going to respond? So he goes on and he gives another reason. So the first reason why is because they're just so caught up with themselves. And by the way, I'm going to add one thing here that's important to add. As we're talking about the Pharisees, sometimes people can be very religious and think they're going to get to heaven because of their religiosity. And they love their religiosity and their pomp and circumstance very much and their service very much. But they don't have a relationship with God. And that's still the same thing of prioritizing yourself over what God's calling you to do. You're doing what you want to do. Now, we move to the next reason. The next reason is that their seats are given to others. I mean, how could they sit there when the seats have already been given away? Let's read this. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring, to the poor, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Okay, so the first thing we see is that the head of the household, the guy who's inviting him, the host, is angry. Now, that tells us a couple interesting things because we've already identified the host as God. So it tells us that God has emotions like we do. He gets angry like we get angry. Uh, it tells us that anger can sometimes be a good thing. It's, it's right. Not losing your temper and throwing a tirade and pounding your head against the wall and that kind of stuff. But, but getting upset, sometimes there's reasons to get upset. He has a good reason to get upset. He has RSVPs have been given him and people haven't shown up. Have you ever invited somebody to something? Maybe you've paid for a nice meal for them and they don't show up and now you're out that money? Does that make you upset? It should. In fact, I was working out in my front yard the other day and I heard these two ladies coming by on their bikes and they were riding them and one shouted to the other, and she didn't have to give me the RSVP if she wasn't going to come. And I thought, boy, this person would understand what we're going to be talking about today. <laughs> so that still happens, right? So he's upset with that, and so he says, boy, we've got to move quickly because the meal's already ready. Go out and get somebody. Go to the streets, the big streets, go to the alleys, the little streets, where the outcasts are. Who are the outcasts? Well, they would be the poor, and they would be the crippled. Now, key understanding here is, in Greek, the word for crippled is actually maimed, or those who have been injured. And then it goes on to name the other two, and they're sort of subsets. So it's sort of like saying those who have been injured and lost their sight or those who have been injured and lost their ability to walk. It could be those that were born that way, but it's also most people in those days over a period of time, they lost the ability to walk or to see because of ailments, but often because of injuries. And they didn't have workman's comp, and they didn't have government assistance. These people had nothing to offer. 
And so who is going to take care of them? In Jewish society, if you go back to uh, the Mosaic law, you'll see that the people were supposed to take care of one another. If you go to Micah, you see that he eloquently speaks about justice and mercy throughout his book. But these things have been conveniently overlooked as they often are today. People that are poor and handicapped are generally the people that people look past. And they don't care that much about. They don't think of. And so God says, go to those people. Go to the outcasts. And he says, well, there's still more room. So he says, then go out of the country. Go to the people who are Samaritans, as we saw last week, that they didn't like. Go to the people that are Romans, whom they didn't particularly like. Go to the people that are Gentiles or non-Jews. Bring everybody in. Now, he, he says this is for everybody to come in. And, you know, it's a fascinating thing, the outcast of society. When we read the Bible, we see that it's very different than we think. We tend to think that the people that are the most attractive and the strongest and the wealthiest and the most successful are going to be the most important people when we get to heaven. And yet repeatedly does the Bible tell us that it's going to be the poor and the handicapped and the people that we don't look to. I've had the privilege over my years in ministry to on several occasions minister to people who, for example, did not regularly come to church because of health reasons. And yet they were among the most godly people that I've ever met. And they ministered to the people who gave care to them, and they ministered to the others around them, sometimes even had Bible studies in their home. And I'll tell you what, they'll have higher seats at the banquet than will some pastors like me that pontificate on Sunday mornings eloquently or try to because they're, they're really working in people's lives and having an impact and their hearts are right before God. And that's what God is talking about here. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, he identifies those people and then he says that he should make them come in. Now, the word make, some people make too much of that. It doesn't mean that they have to. It means to compel them. It means to be, it's persistent hospitality. You try to persuade them to come in. Uh, it raises uh, some interesting questions here. The, the question that often comes up is, um, well, is how many people are being invited in. And I like what, what Peter says, who knew Jesus so well, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says that uh, God does not desire that anybody should perish. And I like what John says in John chapter 3, verse 16. What does he say in John 3, 16? You all know that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so in this sense, he doesn't necessarily make them all come in, but he extends an invitation to all of them. In that sense, everybody in all of history has been offered an invitation. So how are we going to respond? Um, T.W. Manson has an interesting statement. He says, man cannot save himself, but he can damn himself. Think about that. Man cannot save himself, but he can damn himself. And what he's saying there is that God offers the invitation, but we have to respond. There's this interplay that's hard to understand theologically of the fact that God is, is sovereign and in complete control of every circumstance. But there's a point at which we have to respond to come into the kingdom and if we're going to be well-seated at the kingdom, that we really live lives that are for God. We have to respond to those invitations. 
Now, I've had some thoughts of this as I thought about it. I thought, well, what are some thoughts for today? How does that you know, relate to us today? I had a stream of thoughts. Some may relate, some may not to you. The first one was just the fact that this great banquet is coming. Can you envision it? I mean, if you've ever been to a great meal or a great wedding, what is that going to be like? It's going to be absolutely incredible, and it's fun to even visualize. You'll kind of use your imagination a little bit and think about it. But then I thought about how have you received your invitation? How have you received your invitation? Some of us would say, well, I heard it on Sunday morning. Pastor said something. Others might say, I read it in the Bible or in a book. Heard it on radio. Heard a song. Occasionally, it's maybe a dream or some kind of experience in nature. But generally, it's related to people. And usually, it's a variety of all those things. You might think through how you were invited or maybe recognize that you've been invited but haven't yet responded. Or maybe you don't feel you have been invited, and if not, you're being invited today. The second thing I thought of is who does the inviting today. If Jesus is not here to do the inviting like he did originally, who does the inviting? Jesus lives in us today, right? So who does the inviting? We do the inviting. We get the privilege of inviting people to the banquet. Have you ever invited anybody to a big event that you were really excited about, a wedding or a party, a graduation party or something that you really were excited about, a birthday party? This is the greatest party that the world has ever known. And you have the opportunity to invite all of your friends and everybody that means anything to you. Who are the eight to 15 people that God has sovereignly and supernaturally placed in your life? Those are the people God's made it easy for you. He's placed people in your life for you to just get to know, to befriend them. Uh, and, and if they don't come, you know, you still are their friends. You don't base friendship on whether people come to know Christ or not. But you, you just build friendships. And those that want to come, they can come. Everybody's invited. And you have the opportunity to do the inviting. Now, there is a problem with the invitation, and that's that sometimes we have trouble receiving it. And I think the primary reason we have trouble receiving it is because we put ourselves and other things over God. And even after we receive it, sometimes we have trouble growing in our relationship with God because we're still tempted to make other things God in our lives. What do you make God in your lives? What is most important to you? What is possibly more important to you than God, or maybe is the thing that's keeping you from knowing Him? Is it your time? You want your own time. You want control over all the circumstances. You don't want him to control your life. Is it your money and your possessions? Is it friendships or what you might call fun? I'd encourage you to deal with those things before God. In many cases, it's a matter of getting rid of it. You know, I remember when I was younger, I had to get rid of my watch because it was controlling my life and had to allow God to direct the traffic. It may be giving away money if you find that you're hoarding it. Uh, Find out it's usually the opposite of whatever it is that you're struggling with. If you go the opposite direction, you'll find the peace and satisfaction that you're missing. Because what's happening is those things are controlling your relationship. And we need to let those things go so that we can not only receive the invitation to come in, but really prepare ourselves for the day when we enter in um, to that great celebration. Are you reaching out? to the outcast. 
And the outcasts don't always have to be those that are in the worst condition. Jesus kind of opens it to all the people, even the people that were considered outcasts because they were different nationality, different skin color, different background, different minority. It can be many different people, and it's surprising sometimes who the outcasts are for us. Let me give you an illustration. When I was a senior in college, I decided to have a Bible study to end all Bible studies. I was a resident advisor in a building that was 12 stories high. We were the highest building at San Jose State University, that great mecca of higher education. And uh, Randy, are you coughing? I thought you were laughing at me for a second. If you're coughing, that's nice. Nice cover. Um, And so we lived there. We called it the penthouse. And I had some buddies on that floor that I really liked. I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to, these guys were really sharp, talented young men, and I was going to pour my life into them, and they were going to change the world. Um, and it was interesting because they were multi-ethnic and very attractive guys. I mean, guys that just really had it together. Uh, one of them was uh, Steve. Steve was a tall Portuguese-American basketball player in high school. He had a swagger to his walk and bushy hair, and he was just plain cool. And then there was Eric, he was Filipino-American, and he, uh, he just, he, had mag- he was magnet- magnetic personality. Big smile, lots of charisma, beautiful girlfriend, had it all together, everybody liked Eric, he was a charmer. And there was Kelvin, who was African-American, short, stocky guy, just a heart of gold, just a kindred spirit, really loved Kelvin, really good guy. Russell somehow fit in. He was a tall, sort of handsome, blonde guy that just wanted to be in, so we let him come in. And didn't work out too well with Russell, but we let him in. Um, but then we had one other guy, and that was Craig. And Craig was this tall Chinese guy. He was six feet tall for a Chinese guy, Chinese-American guy. And he lived across the hall from me, and Craig was painfully shy. He'd get tongue-tied, especially around women. Um, but he had a huge heart. So I decided to invite Craig in, but didn't expect him to be the one that would change the world. Now, if I had time, I could tell you the story, but each one of these guys dropped out until guess who remained? Craig. Craig went on to be an award-winning photographer with several newspapers and uh, is married. Both he and his wife are walking with the Lord. And and last conversation I had with him, they were looking into short-term missionary work. I have discovered again and again how that happens. It seems like every time I think these are the guys it's going to be, God always surprises me with the one that has the big heart. I should have known all along. I think that's true with us. I wonder, the guy that had a Bible study with me, I don't think he was really excited about me being there. But he brought me in anyway. Truthfully, most of us that come to Christ are the, are the outcasts. Because as Paul says, when we're weak, then we're strong. We need to depend on him. That's how we come into relationship with God, not by having it all together. And that brings us finally to this whole idea of the poor and the maimed. How are we taking care of them, the poor, the handicapped in our midst? And a lot of it is those people around you, once again. If you keep your eyes open... There are people around you that are hurting in a variety of ways. They may be in the hospital. I met a boy, talked with a family the other day where there's a young man who's struggling um, with a tumor, with cancer. And there's people like that that may be your neighbor that you need to go into and visit and befriend and encourage. 
That's the opportunity that we all have. And it may be getting involved with a great organization as we have these days. You can do that. You come and talk to us about that if you're interested. Or better yet, join one of our small groups because each of our small groups has the, the purpose of trying to get out and, and find some way to help people that are needy or hurting within our community. You know, Andrew Jackson, you guys ever heard of Andrew Jackson? Andrew Jackson was a very controversial and very domineering United States Army general and later actually president of the United States. When he died, they sent reporters to his cotton plantation called the Hermitage in Nashville to get the scoop. And one reporter talked to one of his slaves and said to him, do you think the general is in heaven? And the slave responded, him is if him wants to be. Because that was the kind of man he was. But guess what? You don't get to heaven on your terms. You only get to heaven on God's terms. His terms are pretty straightforward. You admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. You believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And you choose to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone. If you do that, come and see us because we'd love to talk to you about that journey and how you can grow in your relationship with him. The day's come. The invitation's out. And we need to see how things are going to go. Are you going to go to heaven? Are you going to sit up front in a place of honor because of your faithfulness to God? How will you respond with your invitation? Or how have you responded? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the invitation to the greatest party the universe could ever imagine. That each person in this room, I pray that each person in this room will be here on that day. If there's anybody here that does not yet know you, I pray that they would come and talk to us and, and surrender their lives to you. And uh, for those of us that have already sent in our RSVPs and are planning on being there, I pray that when we get there, it would be a, truly a time of tremendous celebration and we wouldn't be uh, sent to the back because of our behavior, so to speak. We don't know exactly how that works out, but we know that you're just and uh, you will work it all out in a just way. Help us to walk closely to you, each of us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.